Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. And Father, we lift this time to you. We believe that you have placed us in this place at this time for your purposes. We believe that you use your people as your instruments in this world for healing and for hope. And so tonight, would you convict our hearts? Would you move by your spirit to to stir us and help us to see our own lives and where we need to turn and repent and where we need to embrace opportunity that's in front of us. And so we ask, we plead with you that by your spirit you would speak. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. This week, it feels like we don't have a week go by at this point that there isn't something in national news that another tragedy to be able to talk about. Last weekend, at a concert in Las Vegas, there was a shooting um, that is horrific, and as the details continue to roll out, it just seems to get worse and worse. Uh, We're in a nation that is consumed by rising racial tensions, that um, that it, it's, it's, it's really, what's amazing is that I think what has happened is that things that have been undercurrents and at least somewhat hidden, that the layers have just been peeled back so that everything feels exposed right now. This week, if you haven't seen in the news, there was another black man that was shot in the back and killed in Utah. Last night, there was another rally with torches in Charlottesville as young white men yeah, that's the thing that's amazing to me is that I, I have this hope, like this is something that's dying out and it must just be old white men from, a, from certain regions that are involved in this, but it's not. It's young men that are rallying with torches. And it's something that, that I think, I, I can have the temptation, I think this is for all of us, that we can have a temptation to try to distance ourselves from some of those things, particularly areas of racial tension. And, and so we can have a tendency to think, well, well that's, not, that's not my experience, that's not what's happening in my spheres, that's not what's happening around my friends, that's something that's happening down there. You know, Charlottesville's only a few hours away, but, but that's, the, I mean, that's the, the traditional deep south, and so that's why it's happening there. But it's not here in the district that we're experiencing that, or, or we look at the things around, and we, we try to just emotionally, sometimes for the sake of, of survival, we try to distance ourselves emotionally from some of those things. But, but we need to see that that brokenness infuses everywhere right now, in major ways and in smaller ways. Um, last Friday, I got to go to a Nats game. I also got to go just a couple of days ago on Friday, in, in which somebody invited me to a playoff game, which was fantastic. And I was really, this weekend has been hard for me. I grew up in Chicago, and so I'm a Cubs fan. And the Nats are playing the Cubs in the playoffs right now, in case you don't pay attention to baseball and you've crawled under a rock this weekend in D.C. Um, and so... I found myself yesterday actually wearing a DC t-shirt, and I have a DC tattoo on my arm, wearing a Cubs hat and feeling massive inner turmoil. (laughs) But on Friday night, so on Friday night, it felt strange. I often go to Nats games with my eight-year-old son, and we cheer for the Nats. It's just that when they play, there's only one team that I would cheer against the Nats, and it's when they play the Cubs. Um, so we got to go a week ago Friday, and it was great because they weren't playing the Cubs. They were playing the Pittsburgh Pirates, and the game didn't matter, and we had a blast. But on the way back from that game, we went to get on the circulator bus and to, to come home. And as we were getting on the circulator, we, we kind of stayed around after the game and enjoyed the stadium. And so the, the crowds were kind of thinned out. We were getting on the circulator, and the circulator bus pulled up, and there was a woman in a motorized wheelchair waiting to get on the bus. And so if you ride the bus at all, you've seen this, where the, you know, the bus pulls up, and it lowers itself, and then it, it, the, the ramp flips out of the door, and the woman in the wheelchair was able to get on, and then you wait until the ramp gets pulled in, and then everyone else can get on the bus. 
Well, the ramp was turned out, the woman got on, and she was getting secured into place. The bus driver had to go and strap her wheelchair in so that it was safe for her to ride. And while that was happening, there were three white folks that almost certainly were not from the neighborhood, uh, just by the way that they acted, and, and you could just tell, they had a vibe. And so they just immediately walked up the ramp and were standing on the ramp. And everyone else that was there around me and my son were African-American people. And a woman gently just tried to say, excuse me, um, you need to step off the ramp so that, so that the bus driver can close the ramp and then we can all get on the bus. And they didn't respond. And so another, another person jumped in and, and said, excuse me, just gently saying, please, can you, can you step off the bus so that, so that the bus driver can close the ramp? And then a man in a wheelchair, a black man in a wheelchair with one leg came wheeling up and, they, and some folks again asked, hey, can you, can you please step off the ramp? There's somebody else that needs to get on the bus. And these three white folks were standing on, in, inside the bus in the entryway and they didn't even turn to look. The people that were speaking to them may as well not have existed to them. There was zero acknowledgement. And so the temperature started to rise. More people started to get vocal. It started to get a little bit more, a little bit louder. Not yelling, just you could feel the tensions rising. And finally, I stepped up and just said, hey, get off the ramp. There's a guy in a wheelchair that needs to get up into the bus. We'll all be able to get on. And the, these three people went, oh, okay, sorry, and stepped off the ramp. And I was furious. That's dehumanization. That is, when you hear people talk about white privilege and, people, and white people that get blinded, that is a clear example of it. Now, I understand that I'm also not the smallest guy. <laughs> that may have been some factor in it. And I understand that I wasn't gently entreating and pleading with them, that I had a more commanding tone with them because I was angry at them in that moment. But I also understand that they didn't even respond to the people around that didn't look like them. They acted as if they were invisible, even the man in the wheelchair, and it took someone else stepping in for them to be responsive. After we got everything settled and people were filing onto the bus, the other folks that were around and some of the ladies that were around pulled me aside and thanked me for stepping in and I was almost, I was embarrassed. And they were talking to my boy, to my son, and explaining to him, you need to take care of people around you, like teaching him lessons and affirming him. You guys, the, Racial division and racial tension is not distant. It's not something out there, it's something that exists all around us. Some of you experience that every day, some of you are keenly attuned to it, for some of you it's something that feels distant. Tonight we need to understand that if we don't feel and see the brokenness that exists around us, we're not gonna be able to be a part of God's work in bringing hope and healing into the midst of it. So we're in Galatians chapters three and four tonight. If you have a Bible, please open it with me to Galatians 3. And this is what we see. It'll also be on the screen. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Then if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what we see in this text, we've been walking through Galatians, and as we've studied Galatians, we've seen a number of theological concepts leading up to this point. We just spent some time seeing Abraham and how Abraham was a man of faith and how he shows us the beauty of redemption, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We've talked about justification, that, that we are justified or given right standing before God in Christ alone, by faith alone. And so that, so that right standing is something all of us need and all of us long for and reach for in a variety of ways. And we know this in life. I think theological terms get thrown around and sometimes they get confusing. Justification just means right standing. Every one of us wants to be in right standing when it comes to our bills and our finances. Because if you're in right standing with your water bill, it means that you can take a shower and smell nice when you come to church. If you're out of right standing with your water bill, it means that they will shut your water off. Right standing extends, though, to relationships, too, to be in right standing with a friend and to reach out. And to make, it takes work to be in right standing in relationship because relationships take work. It's not easy. Because ultimately, in relationships, we need to lay ourselves down and our preferences down and our offenses down in order to be able to be in an ongoing and deeper relationship with other people. But, but it's, it takes work to do that. But what we've seen is that before God to be in right standing, to be in full righteousness, is something that none of us can achieve on our own. It is given to us in Jesus, and, and it is only through him. <clears throat> now... In Galatia, in this province, the churches had a wrestling match going on where people were adding the Old Testament law back in on top of faith in Christ. And so they were requiring elements of the Old Testament law saying that you needed those things in order to be given right standing. You know, for us, most of us aren't wrestling with that. Most of us aren't wrestling directly with reapplying Old Covenant law on top of the gospel. But... There are all kinds of laws that we turn to for our justification. There are all kinds of things that we turn to to earn our right standing before God. Some of those things that we turn to, that we rely on for our right standing in God's sight, are things that we're born into. So if you're from a certain region or you have a certain cultural background, sometimes that can become a primary identity that is a part of your relationship with God. Um, there was one time, I grew up in Chicago, and so we, we kind of, in Chicago, there's kind of a culture, like the Northeast urban areas in the United States too, we just kind of say things like they are, and it, like you should say them, I would say. Um, other regions of the country, that doesn't work the same, and I've learned that. Like, I learned after a long time, that, and, and misunderstanding this for decades, that when Southerners tell, say, oh, bless your heart, that... That's like 50-50, right? Like, I just heard somebody use it in a positive way this past week, and now I'm surprised by that, because I learned that bless your heart might not be a blessing at all. That's a way to say, you're an idiot. Oh, bless your heart. But there's certain things that we regionally start to tie in, and so I've actually met people that have said, like, like you know, I, I would only marry somebody that grew up in the same state I did. And that's, we start to find our identity those ways. For some of us, it's other things. It might be racial identity that you actually believe in the supremacy of a given race. It could be gender identity, that you find your right standing before God in your maleness or femaleness. It, it could be your socioeconomic standing. And this happens on both sides. People that are wealthy have a tendency to moralize poverty, to believe that it's someone's shortcomings or their de bad decisions or their morals or their sin that is the reason that somebody is poor not realizing that there's a whole complicated mess of socioeconomic reality. And it happens the other way too, that there's times when, when those on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum can look at those who are rich and make the assumption, if you're rich, you, what is it that you compromised in order to get there? 
And so we can find our right standing even there. So there's things that we're born into that we really have no control over. There's other things that we choose. And so it could be that you find your right standing before God in your political ideology. For some of you tonight, the fact that we have started and opened the, the sermon tonight by talking about race has already made you nervous because race, racial issues have become so politicized that if you're on the conservative side of the spectrum, you could immediately be thinking and wondering what shots is he gonna take that are gonna be lefty. You need to hear that the Bible speaks about moral issues that go past the politicization of them. For some of you, it's on the other side that you're, and my, my fear is that, that if we start to talk about systemic injustice and racial issues, that you might feel, leave feeling justified in a political ideology that focuses on those things as primary issues. You need to hear that there is no political ideology that has a corner on the gospel. And if we begin to find our justification standing before God in those things, it's going to show up in our lives. For some of you, it's way more nerdy than that. We can actually find our justification in theological minutia, and in knowing that we have the corner on the right things to think about who God is, and start dividing over that. So listen, while we might not face the same tensions now that they were facing in Galatia, the church still divides over human distinctions. We elevate other identities to the primary outside of Christ so that it even divides the church. And this isn't new. Uh, Dr. King said, noted long ago that it is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. So today we're going to talk about these things. We're going to go headlong into the awkwardness that no one wants to talk about because we're a family. And in a church family, we need to be able to talk openly. I'm also gonna ask you to extend some grace to me tonight. I am undoubtedly going to say something that is a trigger for you, that makes you wonder if I'm saying something else that has long, like, series of implications, and please give me some grace as I misspeak and as I stumble ahead. We need to be able to talk openly with each other and take the risk of misstepping if we're ever gonna get anywhere on these things. Um, so let's take the risk and extend grace to each other tonight and this week in our community groups. The root problem in all of this is that we're trapped. And what we see in the text today is that, that there is hope for freedom to move from slavery to sonship. That's the overarching theme that we have in Galatians 3 and 4. But for us to understand that, we first need to understand what we're trapped in, where that slavery comes in. In Galatia, it was, it was the slavery under the, the old covenant law. For us, that again gets applied, we can apply that to so many other laws we turn to for our righteousness. And the, the root problem here is that every single one of us has a deep heart-level problem with the other. And I don't know what that is for you. I don't know who the other is. I don't know what lines that gets drawn on and who it is in your heart that you just can't believe that someone could actually be a Christian or at least, or, or even be in the same level of standing before God if X, Y, Z is true. But all of our sin ultimately is idolatry. It's the de-godding of God and putting ourselves in his place. This is the first thing that happened in, in, after God created man and woman that the snake came to them and the first question he asked was, was did God really say? Like he, he, he called question into what God had, had said to them and then went on to say, listen, he, wants, he planted the seed of suspicion. God really wants your experience to be limited because if you, if you take this step to rebel against him and to go outside of the rules he put into place, it's going to make it so that you become like him yourself and he doesn't want that. And what the snake did is he spoke into the desire that we would become God. The root of our sin is still there. And, and think, I mean, think about this. If you are scrolling your phone right now, there's grace for you. It's okay. You can still put it away. But if you're scrolling your phone right now and you come up to a picture of a group of people and you know you're in that picture, where do your eyes go first? What do you look at first? Think about this. Do you remember, like I can remember in high school when we took like the graduating class photo 
You guys ever have to do something like that? Where they put like hundreds of people on bleachers and there's some guy on a, on a, you know, out in the football field on a ladder with a wide angle lens. And you get that picture and it's rolled up and you unroll the tube and it's like the faces are this big in it. And what do you do when you look at that picture? Do you go through and look at all of your classmates and reminisce about memories of, or whether or not you even knew them? No. You go, where was I sitting? There I am. We are self-obsessed. Every one of us. Think about when you run through conversations and arguments in your head and think about the things that you wish that you would have said. Have you ever lost one of those replays? (laughs) I am undefeated. (laughs) If that's true, then really the heart of our idolatry, our self-idolatry can be boiled down to two aspects. Every one of us wants safety, to know that we're gonna be okay, And every one of us wants significance, to know that we matter. Every one of us. And and because we love ourselves, we have a tendency to surround ourselves with people who are like us. And that could be, whatever way you wanna cut that, whether it's life stage or political beliefs or race. And so we surround ourselves that are people like us because we want to be safe. And when we're around people who think like us and affirm our thoughts and our constructs and our place in this world, it feels safer. And so we, we, start to, we start to build into communities that are safe for us to be in, and then we want to be significant. And so that, that fight for significance makes it so that we will un, undoubtedly and inevitably get tribal about it and begin to fight for our superiority as a group of people, and, and, and we need to put others down because of it, and we see it everywhere. Why else are a bunch of young white men marching in Charlottesville with torches? They want to know that they're significant and that their place is secure. This is why when people say black lives matter, the response that you hear from too many white folks is, no, all lives matter. Now listen, I'm not going to get into the politics of the Black Lives Matter movement, but, but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and somebody cries out, my life matters and people who have my shade of skin, our lives matter and there's, there's brutality and we're being killed in the streets and your first response as a Christian is no, then you need to rethink what gospel you're, you're actually believing. I mean, think about this. It's October. Every year, that means it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. That means you can tune into the NFL in October, and in football games, players will be wearing pink and have pink you know, hand towels and pink gloves and pink accents everywhere on NFL uniforms. Can you imagine somebody in the stands holding up a sign that says, in the midst of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, saying, all diseases matter? We'd look at that person and just go, what is wrong with you? I mean, yes, it's true, but, but that's not what we're talking about. But it's this fight for safety and for significance. That's what the resurgence of white nationalism rearing its ugly demonic head. That's, then, then, then we have the issue of what has become of white evangelicalism. Which, can we be real about this one for a moment? Because I don't know quite how all of that got hijacked. Evangelicalism, at its start, like, that goes back to, even to the Reformation. Like Luther and Calvin were called evangelical because it meant they were centered on the gospel. The word evangel just means gospel. But that has come to mean something entirely different in our current political setting. And now I'm stuck because I look at, I walk into my office, and, you know, I'm going to walk into my office tomorrow, and I was there earlier this afternoon, and I'll flip on the light, and I see my diploma on the wall from, from seminary, and you know where it's from? It's from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Then I see my ordination certificate on another wall, and you know what it says? It says, ordained, Evangelical Free Church of America. And this morning I was working on, on making sure I had stuff nailed down to preach today to our church, and I looked at those, and then I looked down at my skin, and I was like, well, what am I supposed to say if somebody asks, are you a white evangelical? Don't look at my credentials? I mean, what am I supposed to say? I mean, it depends on what you mean by that. If you mean, are you racist and nationalistic? Are you someone that's gonna defend monuments and racist symbols, and, and, then no. If you mean, are you a white guy who loves Jesus? Then yeah. 
listen, our nation is fractured. We're broken. And what's depressing is that churches reflect the same thing. This stuff's overwhelming to me, and it's impossibly challenging. And the schisms are nothing new. The church has, hasn't been unified since 1050 AD. And so when this stuff seeps its way into the church, it becomes destructive and false gospels rise to the top. Miroslav Volf is a brilliant scholar at Yale who wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace that is tremendously helpful. And he talks not about in the American context. And so it takes off all of the pressure that you might feel about political ideology that gets infused in these conversations because he's talking about, about Czechoslovakia and, and conflict that happened in Eastern Europe. And he had this observation. He said, slaves to their cultures, churches were foolish enough to think of themselves as the masters. Churches became, became too interlocked with culture, spilling into partisan politics, marked by the mobilization of collective hate and cultivated bigotry. Along with parishioners, the clergy are often trapped within the claims of their own ethnic or cultural community and thus serve as legitimators of ethnic, ethnic conflict. God help us. Church, we've got to figure out what to do with this. In an increasingly globalized, fast-paced world that it's hard to step back from the news cycle, but we, we almost have to because it sucks out our souls. There's got to be hope and answers somewhere. So tonight, I'm going to ask that all of us take a look internally as we even consider collectively what these things mean for our church and what we see, the hope that we see in Galatians 3 and 4. We're trapped without Christ. We're enslaved. And then again, it's not under the law necessarily, like the Galatians were fighting here, but there are laws that we turn to. And so what is your other? I'm gonna ask the question again. Is it politics? Is it race or culture or regional? Is it socioeconomic? Is it, is it theological? Well, today's passage gives us hope. The hope we get, though, isn't simplistic. And it's not white and Western, because Christianity isn't primarily white and Western at all. But my hope today is that you would be able to hear the word of God speak, that all of us would, and that even my limitations as your pastor would fade away. And so we're trapped. But the hope we have here is that Jesus has redefined Abraham's family. And this is what we see beginning in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Like, do you understand how, how bold of a statement this is? That, that if you are in Christ, you are adopted in as a member of Abraham's family. That we looked at this last week, that God made a promise to Abraham that all of the families of the earth would be blessed through him. Remember, he took Abraham by the hand and took him outside and said, look up at the stars in the sky and count them if you can. That's what your offspring will be like. And we saw last week that the promise is that because Abraham was a man of faith, all of those who are in faith in Christ, if you turn to Jesus, then what it means is that the promise that God gave Abraham when he was looking at those stars and counting them was that you would be a part of his family, that you would be one of his children. That you were one of those stars that Abraham was looking up at and being promised by God, I'm going to give you this, that in Christ we are the ones that were promised to him. And that means that through Abraham we're given a relationship with God, the one, the one, and we're the ones through whom he will bless the whole world. That he blesses us so that we might be a blessing to others, that we're given a promise of a place and an inheritance in the new heavens and in the new earth. All of it's reliant on God's work, not ours. And this caused problems in the early church. 
As people came in, we saw this in Galatians 2, that there was a massive conflict that happened as the Jewish people and the, and the Greek people, the Gentile people, were trying to figure out what it meant to be in community together because there were norms and mores that were being broken and there was friction that happened as people from different backgrounds came together. There was racial tension and there were cultural issues and clashing lifestyles. All of that was stuff that had to be worked out and it was in almost every New Testament letter to churches that we have. So that's not just Galatia, that was everywhere. Everything, all the barriers were overturned. The things that divide us were obliterated at the foot of the cross. And so the racial tensions and divisions were removed. Socioeconomic divisions were removed. The church was the only place culturally where a slave could be his master's pastor and elder and be an authority over him spiritually. That was messing with people's categories. Again, we saw this tension in Galatians 2 as as Paul had brought Titus, a Greek, along with him who wasn't circumcised and he was welcomed by the apostles. And then when Peter goes up to Antioch, he separated himself out from the, the Gentile people and only ate with the Jews because he was scared of some pressure that was happening back in Jerusalem. And Paul took that moment and said, and confronted him publicly and said, what are you doing? This is actually undercutting the gospel itself because you're undercutting that our justification and our righteousness, our right standing before God is only through Christ. You're adding something else on top of it. Now, what this means is that all of us, every one of us here is welcomed to God's family, to Abraham's family, through the cross of Jesus Christ, by faith alone that we come to him. And we're called together in unity and in love to lay ourselves down for each other. What this does not mean is that we're all called to be the same. It doesn't mean that our distinctions cease. Your ethnic makeup and background is part of how God made you. And actually, the global diversity of God's people, the church, is what is, is the key to its beauty. Because all of us together reflect God's image and likeness. And so, when we see the vision of God's throne and its people from every language, tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping him, it doesn't say that they've all become the same. It says that everybody's been gathered together with one ultimate purpose. But there's still distinction that makes it more beautiful. And so it doesn't mean that, that you lose your gender. Your gender is part of how God made you. And men and women are different and needed. I mean, think about this. Just look at the rea- the how, how badly we need each other in something as simple as like the conference that's coming up. Ladies, you've got the chance to go to this conference and it's gonna be beautiful. They're gonna decorate this place. In years past, they've had like twinkly lights and tablecloths and stuff set up in the fellowship hall and they've rented tents outside and served dinners. You walk into the men's retreat and it's like, hey, there's some Cheez-Its and a, a, <laughs> and a box of fruit snacks. Good to see you guys. <laughs> My gosh, am I so grateful that there are women in this church who help things be more beautiful than if it was just us guys running things. We need each other. You don't lose who you are when you come to Christ, but there's an equal offer that everyone comes as a child of God through Christ. Socioeconomics are not a moral success or failure. All are welcome in this family. And so freedom from slavery to sonship, without Jesus we're trapped, but the hope that we have is that Jesus has redefined Abraham's family, and then third, that through Jesus we are adopted as heirs. Do you see this? This is what it says in in verse four. That we are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world on our own, but when the fullness of time had come at exactly the right moment, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now listen, the language here of sonship isn't just being sexist. I know some of you ladies are immediately going, wait, am I a son or a daughter? Paul was using language of sonship here because only the sons had a share in the inheritance of their fathers. 
the beauty of what he's saying here and that was revolutionary in the first century was he was saying male and female, we are all brought in as heirs of the inheritance. Every one of us that is a daughter of, God's, of, of, the, of God the king, you ladies are given all the access of sonship. You're brought in and given a share as well. Then, then, that sons and daughters of God are brought in as heirs of the promise of Christ's inheritance because he's changed everything. He gives us an identity and he brings us into a people and gives us a purpose. He adopts us as heirs. And so this is something that we need to understand too, that the, the, the beauty, the, most, the highest point of the gospel, the most, highest privilege of the gospel is adoption. And here's why. We've talked about some big theological terms the last few weeks. So we've talked about justification, that you're in right standing before God by grace alone through faith alone. We've talked about, about sanctification, that we are cleansed by God's spirit through faith, that it's not works that we do to earn our holiness, but we're given that gift to be able to walk in it. We've talked about redemption, that we've been purchased from slavery to sin and freed to life. But here's the thing, I have a tendency to hear those things and to think about those things on a primarily individual level. Oh, it's my faith that has given me right standing before God, for me. It's my faith that has given me sanctification, that has brought me holiness. It's my faith that has brought me redemption. And they can turn individual almost solely. But then we get to adoption. Adoption's not just about me. It's not just about you. It's about being brought into the family of God. It's about being orphans trapped without Jesus. Enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. And being brought into a family. And adoption makes us rethink all of the other aspects of the atonement. All of a sudden, why are we justified and brought into right standing before God? It's because in order to become his children, we need to be brought into that standing. It's about us together. Why, you know, what is, what is sanctification and being made holy and cleansed by God's spirit all about? Well, we need, it's not, that's not the primary benefit. That's a nice side benefit for us, but it's necessary for us to be in God's presence, reflecting him in his glory as his sons and daughters, that he cleanses us. And he does that so that we can be brought together in one family. What is redemption? Well, redemption, even when we look at that, the, the core, the root of that word comes from Exodus 19, is God fashioned a people for himself that became the people of Israel, and he redeemed them from slavery to Egypt, well, he, and he brought them out together to be his people. Well, now... God has redeemed us, purchased us from slavery to sin and death and freed us as his people to life. But adoption is the one that begins to bring it all together for us so that we see that it's not just about you or me, which is just our selfish idolatry rearing its head again, even in the beauty of theological terms, but instead says, no, you're brought into a family. What gives you freedom from slavery to sonship is that, that you're brought into God's family, adopted as heirs of the family of God. So what does this mean for us? What does it look like to live as God's family? Listen, we aren't gonna solve all of these issues today. I mean, these are issues that were rearing their head in Galatians 2, and if Peter and Paul were clashing over some of these divisions, it's not like we're gonna get everything nailed down perfectly. But what are some steps forward for us? As individuals, as a church, I wanna be able to think somewhat practically today. I understand too that um, this morning I had to cut half my sermon out because I realized that if I was to preach everything I wanted to say today, we would be here for a full hour and a half to two um, in the sermon. And I didn't think you'd want to do that tonight. Um, maybe I was wrong. None of you are saying that, the, okay, well, next time I'll just go two hours. <laughs> All right, so listen. The first thing that we need to see in this, the hope that we have is that we are freed to cry out to one father together. Do you see that language that appears at the very end of our passage today? Because you are God's sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Abba is, is in Aramaic, that's, that's daddy. I don't know what name you had. Some of you, this is really hard to understand God as your father because your dad is, it was somebody that you had a bad relationship with or he was absent. 
So you need to hear that God is a good father who loves you and has, has saved you and it brings you to himself. For some of you that were close to your father, though, I don't know what language you use for him. I know for me, like, I didn't use the word father because that felt that, like for me to come up to my dad and be like, hello, father, he would have been like, what got into you? <laughs> but it was daddy or dad now. Now that I'm a, yeah, I'm a grown man, I don't call him daddy anymore. He's just dad. <laughs> But maybe you do still call yours daddy. My kids still call me daddy, and I hope it never goes away. It probably will. Probably, my son will probably feel more grown up than now. Now he's eight, so he still like, kisses me on the lips and, and, and is affectionate physically. What, are you, what did you call your dad, though? It was a papa or daddy. This is what we're being freed to. Our relationship with God isn't formal. This isn't a religion where we're petitioning a distant deity to try to come through for us. It's, it's that we're being invited to crawl into his arms and say, Daddy. And that's true no matter your race, no matter your socioeconomics, no matter your background, no matter your gender, that all of us come to Jesus in faith and we're saved. We're brought into his family, into his church. And my desire for Redemption Hill is that we would increasingly become a transcultural gospel community that, that shows that off, that, that, that shows off the beauty of, of what it looks like to have our identity in Christ alone and to believe that our distinctiveness is important and that, that nobody goes to an art gallery to look at a plain white canvas that, that, that is able to show off the beauty and reflect our city. And, and this is why it's also important that we're a part of the networks that we are because we're a part of diverse global networks in Acts 29 and in the EFCA that make it so that we are a part of a diverse, broader family. And there, but listen, there's, the only hope that we have for that is that we get our eyes off of ourselves and onto Christ. People come, around, come together from all kinds of different backgrounds for all kinds of reasons. This happens at work, where you have people that you work alongside who are very different than you, but you have one common mission and goal. Um, honestly, this is what happens in sports. You never realize it fully until you go as an opposing fan into a stadium. Because even like, again, I felt like I've, I've had this inner conflict over the last couple of weekends, and particularly on Friday night, as I walked into Nats Park wearing my Cubs hat. But what was amazing was that when I ran into other Cubs fans, if they were wearing that cubby blue in a sea of Nats red, I had people coming up to me and throwing their arms around me to hug me, slapping high five to me that I've never met before. And I, I'm a hugger, but most people don't look at me and go, you know what, I think that guy looks cuddly. <laughs> like that's not usually the response I get. Usually it's more like the people on the bus that are like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, please don't hurt me. And so, but why is that? Why is it that people of all kinds of different racial backgrounds, of, of probably of all kinds of socioeconomic levels, though if you're to play a baseball game, I got a free ticket. Most of the people there probably had some cash. But people from all over the place. Well, why, what was it? Well, it was just, we were so grateful to see somebody that was wearing the same color, the same jersey, the same hat, that instantly there was a sense of unity together. Everything else faded away. That's all we needed to know about each other is, oh, we're on the same side, we're on the same team, we're fighting for this together. How much more the gospel? That if we understand that we both have one father that we can call to as our daddy, then how much more should we be able to come alongside each other and say, we know what it is that can bring hope to this broken place. Everything else can fade away because we're brothers and sisters in one family together. As a church, that means there, we, I hope there are times when you're uncomfortable. Some of you have laid down comforts in order to bring yourself into this place because it is a cultural change for you. Some of you need to learn how to lay comforts down. And as you do, you'll begin to actually comprehend the gospel. Now, this is part of why we don't divide up community groups. Community groups are open to everyone. They're supposed to be microcosms of the broader church. So that's why we don't divide CGs by age or race or class or gender or life stage. Because if we only surround ourselves with people who are like us for our entire lives, it will only validate our idolatries and insulate our wrong thinking. And so we get, we're freed to cry out to one father together and second, we're blessed so that we can be a blessing. If we want to join God in his work in bringing hope and healing and wholeness, 
then it's gonna start with each of us individually that each one of us has to live in, and exist in a posture of repentance. Turning to Christ as our hope means that we are acknowledging there is nothing I can do to earn my way into God's presence and there's nothing I can do on my own to further his work. It's all him working through me. And so that means that we need to be willing to admit our limitations and we need to be willing to lay down ourselves for others. And every one of us has some issue here. None of us is immune to this. As we've been naming divisions tonight, what is it that made you most nervous? What were you most nervous that I might go there or might say that or might, might hit that talking point? What was it? What was it that made you squirm tonight as we started talking about the ways that people divide? That might be a good place for you to start doing a hard, the hard work of understanding your own heart and understanding who it is for you that's the other. Because every one of us has self-righteousness that we can repent of. But we get to be a part of God's work if we, if we posture ourselves that way. With the confidence that, that we are heirs to the promise of Abraham, to Abraham, part of God's forever family, that, that we've been given access to an inheritance in the new heavens and new earth, and that, that God has blessed us with so much so that we can be used by him to be a blessing to others and to extend grace to others and to reach out and get to know people who aren't like us, who, who are from a different place than us. And there are simple ways to do that. I mean, this is part of the reason we have such a strong theology of food as a church. Right? I love food. <laughs> That's obvious. I don't need to tell you that. But in that, <laughs> it's right, I know. I'm working on it. <laughs> the problem is that when I get together with people, there's something changes when you sit down at a table with somebody and enjoy table fellowship. The relationship deepens. You get to know somebody. My favorite thing is to learn about people groups and cultures that are different than mine by sitting and having a meal together. I mean, he was here in this morning, but I'll still call him out. One of the things, I love going out to, I go out to lunch regularly with Tony Wee because he takes me to places and, and has expanded my palate, and I love Southeast Asian cooking, and Tony's helped me to understand my love for that and cultivated that for me while pushing on me in, in areas of racial conversation and blind spots that I have. And so I get the privilege of sitting and enjoying bibimbap with Tony while also listening to him get angry about how white and westernized the bibimbap is. and learning about his background and his culture, and I love it, I love, I, we live in DC. Go and enjoy mumbo sauce. If you haven't had mumbo sauce, you are missing out on some, some of the nectar of the gods. Like we keep that stuff in our fridge. I get it by the vat so I can put it on things. Learn from people, posture yourself in humility and listen. In our community groups, I love doing a night where people can bring their hometown food. Food from where they're from, so that you can get to know people. And that could be somebody across cultural and racial barriers. It might just be regional. Like you could get people, like if I've got people that, I, I said this earlier, but like Brian Stone, if, if you were in my group and you brought in Skyline Chili, I would again have the conversation with you about how it's really a sauce. <laughs> but I, I know that that's Cincinnati. That is, that is what Cincinnati tastes like, for, for good or bad. <laughs> And I know, like, when, you got, when we've got people from Southern California, I want those, those tacos with, with, with cotilla cheese and, the, and fresh avocado. I want that stuff in my life and in my stomach. <laughs> like, and it's, uh, wherever you're from, wherever you background, like, food, we can learn about each other, and it opens conversations and pathways for each other in an easy way. But, of course, the greatest blessing we can offer anyone is to be able to welcome someone into God's family. As a fellow heir to the promise to Abraham through Christ. So who has God put in your life that you need to get to know? Who in our church family that you need to go and get to know? Who of your neighbors and your coworkers, people that he has put immediately in your life? And listen, if you're in a position of power or privilege, you need to learn what that means. I know for me, I'll talk, I am a large white male with an education. So... That means culturally, I'm often told that this is my cultural moment to sit down and shut up, but it also means that I am in a position that I've been told over and over again is a position of the highest privilege. 
there's been a lot of time where I've wrestled with that in my own life and wondered, like, what does that even mean? And I, or I start to feel shame and embarrassment over it and think, I don't want that. You know, I, want, I, I don't want that background. I would rather have a different background because I don't know what to do with it. And I, I feel like I need to apologize for those things. And I'm learning increasingly that, that if you are in a position of privilege, that you need to learn how to steward that and stop being embarrassed about it. Like, that's, that's what happened on the bus. When, pe- when stupid white people wouldn't get off the bus so that a guy in a wheelchair could get on, is that they, that, that for some reason, it was, they, were, they were oblivious to everything that was unfolding, and it took me stepping up, and, and they listened because all of a sudden they realized it was a voice they could recognize, and it makes me so angry and so frustrated, but I also got the opportunity to talk to everybody else on the bus that night and apologize for their actions and repent on their behalf and to build bridges of, of understanding standing and love with other people because I was willing to step in the gap. And so if you're in a position of power or privilege in a relationship or in a group of people, steward it for the good of others so that other people could be lifted up. And if you're somebody who likes to take advantage of privilege, then you need to hear today, tonight, that every one of us outside of Christ is the other. We were made from dirt. And the only good in us is God's image and likeness that reflects from us. And the things we divide over are typically things we're born into. Apart from Jesus, we are broken and alienated and dead, the least of these. But in Christ, he's brought us into God's family. Listen, the early church was messy. There were all kinds of people coming together to form this new people. I want us to embrace the messiness of that community. We believe that God, in Acts 17, it's that God made from one man every nation of men, and that he has put us where he has, when he has. He has determined the timing and boundaries of our dwelling place so that, reaching out for him, we might find him, even though he's not far from any one of us. So we need to open our eyes and look around, church. And my prayer tonight is that that we would understand that Jesus frees us from our cultural constructs. Jesus frees us from spiritualizing divisions and bigotry. He frees us from tribalism and he frees us from despising the other so that we can be in a messy community together. We're adopted as his children and heirs of the promise. As J.I. Packer, the theologian, said, the highest privilege of the gospel is that adoption. The hope that I have is that, that God has given us the opportunity to step into his work and to bring a healing to a deeply divided world. That healing only comes through Christ and through his church. But he's at work. So let's join him in that work. Let's pray. Um, Father, we need you. We need your help. We need you to expose things in us. We need you to free us to extend grace to people around us. We need you to free us to lay down our own perspectives and offense and hurts to be able to to extend grace and forgiveness to the people that you've placed in community with us. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to grow our church in its ability to reach all people in this city. We pray that globally that your people would be, be your, would be your instruments of healing and wholeness to bring hope to a desperate place. And so Father, would you help us? We thank you that in spite of us, you've chosen to adopt us, that you've chosen to give us right standing, to cleanse us, to redeem us, to free us to live. Now use us, Father, to gather more children into your family. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.